If you would, please stand with me for a reading of the Word of God. Today's scripture will come from Mark chapter 8. Bibles are provided for you on the back of the seats. If you do not have one and you would like one, they are our gift to you. You can find today's scripture on page 492 in that Bible. And we'll begin in verse 31. So says the word of the Lord. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and he said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will be the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of the Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Thus says the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, our hearts are drawn once again as we've sung about it, we've prayed about it, we are drawn in the preparation of the hearing of your word to the cross of Jesus. And Lord, we declare with one voice as the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, that we will glory in the cross of Jesus. And in nothing else, in nothing else will we make our boast, in nothing else will we find any value. There's nothing on this earth that we desire. Who do we desire but the one that is in heaven? So Lord, we thank you for your cross. Lord, I pray that as you did with your disciples, that as we investigate this passage of your holy word, that we would learn the true meaning of your cross, of what it meant to you, of what it means for us. And that, God, we would never be the same. We would be transformed in the in just gazing and surveying, as the old song says, the wondrous cross of Jesus. So, Lord, be with us. Open our hearts. Enable our minds to understand. Just as you did for your disciples, let the eyes of our spirit be wide open today. God, I pray that you would take my stammering tongue and make it effective to proclaim your cross as glorious, as effective. Lord, I thank you for this opportunity and this people that belongs to you to speak your word to them. Lord, help me to do so in a way that brings honor to you. I ask all this in the name of your son. Amen. You can be seated. Um, As I have for the last couple of weeks, I have one very, very quick announcement, and it's really an encouragement. It's a little bit of an arm-twisting thing. Um, next week, we begin our uh, our class for new members. Um, some of you have been at Northridge for a while, and you have not yet 
um, taken that step of becoming members, which we take very, very seriously. So we really want to encourage you to do this. Now, we, you don't become a member by going to the classes. We just, it, it's, it's your way to uh, ask all the questions that you might have here, some of, of uh, what makes Northridge Northridge. And so we're going to do that for the next two weeks, next Sunday and the Sunday after that. You have to be at both classes um, to, uh, to uh, be considered for membership. But they start at 945 right here at the church. I'm sorry, 845. That would give us 15 minutes. We did 945 right here at the church. And so we really want you to come. There are two ways to sign up. We'd prefer that you sign up on the app. If you don't have the app and you don't know what that means, then there's a paper sign-up sheet in the foyer. But please, this is my request. If you're, if you've been kicking the tires on Northridge, kicking the tires on coming to the class, please sign up today. We have some materials that we need to get to you. We have some contact we need to make with you. So please make that happen today. Um, so before you leave here. So thank you much for, for that little, uh, grace to give you that announcement. Now let's get to the far more important task of talking about the Word of God. So in the last two weeks, uh, we've been in Mark 8, uh, which incidentally, for those of you that have been with us through this entire series, um, today, at the end of this message, we will officially be one halfway through the book of Mark. So see, we're making it. Um, in, the, in the last two weeks, we've been in Mark 8, and we've examined this the theme in Mark 8, how Jesus opens eyes of those who follow him as disciples. Now, you'll remember that it began with the with with the disciples in a boat with Jesus. They misunderstood his words. They misunderstood his works. And in that boat, Jesus rebukes them and he says, do you not yet or perceive or understand. We, we're halfway through the book of Mark, guys. That's what, that, that's what he would say if he knew this was going to be the book of Mark, which of course he did because he's Jesus. But he says, do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? And then more importantly to our, our uh, message, having eyes do you not see? Having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? These are the things that the Lord asked, these rhetorical questions he asked the twelve. And then after that, you'll remember, he gets out of the boat with them, and they land in Bethsaida, and he progressively restores a blind man's sight. In other words, he doesn't just touch him and his sight's better, he touches him. He asks the man if he can see, and he says, yeah, I see guys walking around, they look like trees. And so he touches him again, and he demonstrates his patience with us. He'll, he'll stay with us till we see it, and we're going to see that again today. And so he, he does this miracle to illustrate their need of his help. They can't do this without him. They can't see clearly without him. And all of this culminated in the opening of Peter's eyes, And he gives this divinely revealed declaration. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And what does he say? You are the Christ. No one else understood it. The Pharisees didn't understand it. The people in the pagan lands where Jesus went didn't understand it. But because of the intervention of God with Peter, Peter got it. You're the Christ. And so God had helped Peter to see... Who Jesus really was. But today my task is is to show you that the disciples still didn't understand fully what being the Messiah. They knew he was the Messiah, but what being the Messiah would entail. So the text this morning will show you how Jesus answered for his disciples two questions. 
The first being, how does Jesus fulfill his role as the Christ? How does he do it? And the second question is, what does that reality, how Jesus fulfills his role as the Christ, what does that reality mean for every one of us who dares to call him Lord, who dares to follow him? And so we'll discover the answers to these questions by dividing our text today into four headings. And as a great preacher, I've all started them with the letter C. Just kidding. I, you can tell that Gabe and I went to a preaching conference this week. So first I want to talk to him, uh, talk to you about clarification. And then I want to talk to you about conflict. And then I want to talk to you about cost. And then I want to talk to you finally about coming power. And my goal today is that you will be able to examine your life, to examine your thinking, and honestly assess if you, I don't care if you've been a Christian and been in church for years and years, I want you to be able to honestly assess if you truly understand who Jesus is, what his mission was, and what that means for you. Or if you've misunderstood all of who Jesus is. And so we'll look at all of the events, or you'll see rather, that all of the events from chapter 1 through the end of chapter 8 and beginning of chapter 9 that we've looked at so far in Mark for the last six months have not been haphazard. They haven't just been uh, just disconnected Bible stories. On the contrary, everything Jesus has said from the very first words he utters when he says, repent and believe in the gospel, everything he's uttered has intentionally led his disciples to this defining moment in the book of Mark. And they're about to learn for the first time the substance of Jesus's mission so let's look again at the text, Mark 8.31. And this is how the, this was introduced to us today. And he began, so see he's starting something here. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days... Rise again. So keep the context in mind. We are hot on the heels of Peter's bold confession. You are the Christ. And he's commended for it. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. But now Jesus is making clarification for the disciples regarding four aspects of his mission, his ministry, his future destiny. First, Jesus says the Son of Man, and by the way, the Son of Man is Jesus' favorite designation of himself. It's taken from a prophetic reference of the Messiah in, in Daniel chapter 7. He says the Son of Man must suffer many things. Now, we've talked about this a lot. Contemporary Jewish expectation in the first century of the Messiah was completely different. They were looking for a military ruler who would come and who would make their enemies suffer, but not one who would come and suffer himself. Though the disciples and the first century Jews didn't think the 
Messiah would suffer, the Old Testament prophets had clearly predicted these sufferings. We're not going to take time this morning, but when you have time this week, read Isaiah 53, written 600 years before the birth of Jesus, and then read uh, Psalm 22, and you will see clearly that God is pointing to a suffering Messiah. And there's many, many other passages like this as well. And on the basis and the strength of these Old Testament prophecies, Jesus announces, and pay careful attention to his words, that the Son of Man must suffer. See, his words indicate not possibility. Like there's sometimes when Ginger and I are maybe traveling in a place where the neighborhood looks a little sketchy, and I say, we might get mugged. We might get robbed, but that is not what Jesus is saying. He's saying, now listen, guys, I'm ticking some people off and I might get in trouble for this. No, he's saying he must suffer. Why does he say he must? Because the scriptures have already told us that he would. What you're seeing here is that, that Jesus just wasn't the victim of Rome. Jesus was, was crucified and was resurrected. How? By the foreknowledge, the direct foreknowledge and predestination of God. He must suffer. His words don't indicate possibility, but absolute necessity. The die had been cast, the course had been plotted, and he, the Messiah, the Son of God, God incarnate, would know pain. Second, he tells his disciples he must be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. This is the Sanhedrin, the highest court in Israel, this this council that constitutes the leadership of Israel under Roman rule. And this is important because one of the designations of the Messiah is that he is the son of David. In other words, the, the, the one who will one day sit on David's throne. But Jesus is telling his disciples that instead of placing Jesus on David's throne, the leaders would utterly cast him away. He would be, as he said, and, and the Old Testament prophet said, he would be the stone that the builders rejected. Thirdly, this would unavoidably culminate in his death. He would not, under any circumstance, benefit from a last-minute rescue. There would be no last-minute escape for him. Israel's leaders wouldn't merely persecute and reject him. They would actually orchestrate his execution. He was genuinely, in reality, going to die. But lastly, and if I may say parenthetically, most gloriously, he says that after three days, he would rise again. Now, other passages in the New Testament, one in particular that we'll look at, I believe, in next week, say that this statement about rising again was the one that puzzled the twelve the most. You'll recall Mary at the tomb of Lazarus when Jesus raised Lazarus. He he asked her, you know, do you believe your brother will rise again? And she said, in the last day, you bet. I believe he's going to get up out of the grave. He he She believed and the disciples believed that all righteous men would rise from death at the end of time. They get this also from the book of Daniel. Daniel 12, 2. It says, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake 
some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And also there was another problem. Jesus said this would happen in three days. Well, we read that, and what do we think? One day, two day, three days. But it was a Jewish colloquialism in the time that three days simply meant a short amount of time. You know, my wife says, take out the trash. I'll say, I'll get to it in three days. You know, that's, and usually I mean at least three days. So three, it just meant a short amount of time. And this, so, so with those two thoughts, this is how the disciples may have interpreted his words. They may have believed that he thought that he would experience death. And then because of what Daniel said, after just a short time after his own death, the end would come. The, the end of everything. And then he would rise. So they're, they're probably processing due to con- contemporary Jewish thoughts, something along those lines. But surely when Peter stood in Caesarea Philippi, uh, Philippi and said, you are the Christ, surely all the disciples gave their hearty amen to that triumphant confession. Perhaps, so now Jesus is talking about death and suffering and rejection. Perhaps to them it just seemed like Jesus was, for whatever reason, like you and I do sometimes, just getting a little depressed and talking out of his depression. Perhaps he was just in a melancholy. Maybe because of the continual resistance he'd experienced from the scribes and the Pharisees, they just thought, oh, you know, this is tough, Jesus, and you're just being a little bit melodramatic. And we might believe that if we didn't know the end of the story and if verse 32 didn't begin by saying, and he said this plainly. See, in other words, as we've seen elsewhere in Mark, Jesus wasn't using the parables he used so often. He wasn't using figures of speech. He used simple sentences here. He used descriptive words. He wasn't laying out some spiritual riddle for his disciples to understand later. No, he spoke plainly. Now, let's, let's, let's get out of the first century and come into the 21st for just a minute. Can you relate to the 12 processing what Jesus had just said? See, they began following him as he was talking about an intimate intimate kingdom. It's right. It's hot on my heels, guys. The kingdom is here. They saw him heal all manner of sicknesses. They had heard with their own ears the shrieks of devils as he effortlessly evicted them. They saw him speak to a storm on the sea. Peace, be still. And even more amazingly, they saw that the sea had obeyed him. Later, he had gone for a walk in the middle of the night on that same sea. See, what they had seen is that this man that they'd been walking with wielded the very power of Yahweh God. And if that was true, then what Jesus was saying now was just, well, if I can be frank, foolishness, because who could possibly threaten him? Who could possibly endanger him on any level so so here's where we're at i want you to put yourself in their shoes how would you have reacted if you'd been there if you'd been one of the 12 
to what Jesus was saying. While Jesus was making his mission clear for them, their finite minds saw this speech as nothing but a contradiction to everything they had experienced in him and everything they had expected from him. Their enthusiasm that they had for him is now morphing into disappointment and disillusionment. Most of you know Proverbs thirteen twelve. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. But a desire fulfilled is the tree of life. Can I just ask you real directly, have you in your lifetime ever experienced a hope that was deferred? Has the baby that you longed for and you were so excited about miscarried? Has the spouse you gave your life to and loved, have they died or worse yet just departed and abandoned you? Has the job that you loved and worked so hard at just been terminated right out from under you? Has the child that you were raising the best you could rebelled and gotten into sin? Has that prayer that you have persistently prayed remained unanswered? The the hope deferred makes the heart sick. And this is surely from our text how Peter felt. His expectation of being in the cabinet of the king of Israel, the one that was seated on the throne of David, that that expectation was now in jeopardy with Jesus talking like this. And so Peter does one of the brashest things in all of Scripture. Now, keep in mind, we're talking about Peter. This is not a Pharisee. This is not a pagan This was the one who had just received divine revelation, recognizing this is the Christ. He had heard with his own ears the Lord say, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Why? Because he'd gotten this divine revelation. And now, this guy that we see so often in the Gospels as the spokesperson for the twelve, pulls Jesus away from the crowd and says, Hey, Jesus, we need to have a chat. And once there, wherever they went, he dresses him down like a naughty little child. The Bible says that he rebukes him. And the the language in the Greek gives us the indication. This was not like, hey, I disagree with you. He rebuked him sharply. How dare you say such an offensive thing, Jesus? The word rebuke in this text is such a strong word for context so that you'll understand how strong it is. It's the exact same word that is used when Jesus rebukes an unclean spirit. I'm just going to leave that there and let it settle into you. This guy is talking to Jesus the way Jesus talks to devils. It's the same word that is used when Jesus rebukes the storm at sea. See, Peter wasn't humbly asking for clarification. He wasn't just a little bit confused about what Jesus said. He was telling Jesus off for messing with the plan of what he expected. Now, focus. Do you see what's happening here? It wasn't anything in Jesus himself 
that rattled Peter. It was his own expectation of what Jesus, uh, 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 of Jesus' mission that was threatened. It was his expectations. It wasn't the essence of Jesus. It was his own expectations that, that messed with him. And he clearly saw who Jesus was back in Caesarea Philippi. He was the Christ. But he had no understanding, no insight of how Christ would fulfill his messianic mission. And that brings us to our second point. That our expectations of what Jesus means to us will often bring us into conflict with Jesus himself. Uh, Would you allow me to say that again? Our expectations of what Jesus means to us will often bring us into conflict with Jesus himself. We boast in church and services singing loudly and and, and in, in small groups of our devoted service. And yet if we're honest, we spend countless hours grumbling about what we thought Jesus would have done by now. We grumble about the way we thought he would have done it. Great illustration of this. Old Testament book of 2 Kings. Naaman the Syrian comes to the prophet Elijah, Elisha to be healed of his leprosy. And Elisha, when he gets there, he's traveled all this distance. Elisha will not even come out of his house to talk to him. And instead, he sends his servant out with instructions that if followed would have led to his healing. He was told simply to dip himself in the Jordan River seven times and he would be completely healed. But watch closely Naaman's response and think about your own heart. Second Kings 5.11 But Naaman was angry and he went away and he's saying, Behold, I thought... That he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord as God. Wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. See, expectations can conflict with God's purposes. Many churches have a high regard for the idea of expectations simply because they have a gross misunderstanding of true biblical faith. And so you frequently hear them saying things like, expect a miracle, expect a breakthrough. But expectations, listen carefully, expectations based on my desires and not on what God has revealed in the Bible are as deceiving as they are worthless. So how does Jesus react to Peter's boldness? He's been rebuked. What's he going to do? Well, he gives Peter a rebuke of his own. And it's not a gentle one. Softly and tenderly, Jesus rebukes me. And turning and seeing his disciples, verse 33, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona. Get behind me, Satan. Is it just me? Am I overreading the text? Do you guys see a contrast there? For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. See, Notice this thing first. I I wish I could preach a whole message about this, but I'm going to just say one line. 
Peter took Jesus aside to rebuke him. How does Jesus do it? He rebukes him publicly. And you just contemplate the reasons for that on your own time. And then there's this crazy, almost offensive thing to our sensitivities that Jesus says. Why on earth does Jesus call Peter, his trusted disciple, Satan? Do you think that Jesus really thought he was talking to the devil or that maybe he thought Peter was like one of those other hundreds of people he's talked to who was demon-possessed? Nope. That is not what's happening here. The reason that he calls him Satan is that in rebuking Christ, and when Peter rebukes Christ, he's not acting like the spokesman for the kingdom of God. He's not even acting like the spokesman for his disciples. He is speaking for the devil. Be very cautious about that in your grumbling that we all talked about, that we all do from time to time. In your grumbling about what God hasn't done or the way he hasn't done it, be careful that the voice of God may not come to you saying, get behind me, Satan. Because you don't have in mind the things of God, you have in mind the things of man. Now, why would I say that he's the mouthpiece for Satan? It's real easy. If you go to Matthew 4 and, and also in, in uh, Luke, you see these the, the, the story of the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. And in Matthew 4, 8, we see the, the third temptation. And it says, again, the devil took him, Jesus, to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. Now, let me pause there and say that in Revelation, it says that, behold, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. How many of you, by raising your hand, will say that you understand that someday all of this will be under the direct authority of Jesus? Raise your hand if you believe that with all your heart. I hope that's all the hands. I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to test you, but I'm, I'm hoping that's all the hands. That's absolutely true. But Peter, but, but the devil comes to, to uh, Jesus and he says, he says, I've got a deal for you, Jesus. It's going to be yours anyway, but all of these I'll give to you. And you got to do just one thing. No one's looking. No one will ever know. But me and you, if you just fall down and worship me. See what Satan is doing here. He offers Christ a kingdom without that pesky high cost of the cross. So here Peter, just like the devil had done, is trying to persuade Jesus to maneuver his way around the cross, straight to the crown. And Peter thought he was wise enough, but he clearly knows nothing of Jesus' mission of redemption for the world. He didn't understand what all those animal sacrifices that he'd witnessed over and over again for so many years in the temple had demonstrated that it is blood alone that makes atonement for human sin. The real enemy of the Jewish and all people, their enemy wasn't Rome, it was sin. Jesus wouldn't be just another sacrificial animal. He was the perfect, final Lamb of God. He would not cover, but he would take away the sin of the world. Peter was thinking only of human things, status, thrones, crowns, authority, respect. But Jesus had in mind the things of God. He tells us that in John 6. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. But Jesus' teaching wasn't done. 
He not only needed to clarify what was required of the Messiah for the twelve, but also what would be required of all who belonged to the Messiah. He said these things not only to the disciples, but to the crowds as well. Everyone who follows Jesus must know and understand the cost of following Jesus. There is no fine print. It's written in bold, all caps. Jesus wanted us all to know what we're signing up for. So first Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now there's two elements to this primary command. First, you must deny yourself. In all things... We must deny ourselves. We we seek first the kingdom of God, Matthew 6. We suffer the loss of all things that we might know him, Philippians 3. We run to Christ for salvation, never for applause or recognition. And, And we sacrifice for him agendas, dreams, possessions, comforts, and affections, all out of love and gratitude for Christ's goodness, his grace, his sacrifice, and his salvation. Let me show you this from a parable of Jesus. Everybody grab your Bibles and turn to Luke 17. (coughs) Luke 17, and uh, we're going to begin in uh, verse 7. And this demonstrates the idea of denying yourself. So verse 7 says, Will any one of you who has a servant... Plowing or keeping sheep, say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table. In other words, will the master of the slave become the slave of the, of the master? Will, will he, uh, uh, you know, will, will they fl- flip roles? Will he become the host to the guy who does his manual labor for him? Jesus says in verse 8, will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me While I eat and drink. And afterwards you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what he was, what was commanded? And then here's the point. Jesus is about to give us a great application. So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say this. We are unworthy servants. We have only done what our, what was our duty. A life, what is our duty? For all that Christ has done for us, it's a life of dedication, of service. A life that is spent in giving glory to the Master. Not seeking temporal benefits now, but eternal blessings then. Second part of this commandment is you must take up your cross and follow me. Jesus says that what I'm doing, you must also do. Where I am going, you must also go. Jesus, now listen to me, I'm going to clear up one of your Christian misconceptions possibly. Some of you, if I asked what was the purpose of Jesus, you would say to die for our sins. But I wanted to to suggest to you this morning that Jesus doesn't just die for us. He dies before us. Because he's saying here that if you want to come after me, you must take up your cross. And where did Jesus go with his cross? He went to die. And he said, and you must follow me. Now, I am not speaking about this morbid kind of martyr mentality that I'm just going to, you know, live recklessly and die for Jesus. No, but but yet this is an absolute reality for Christians. It's not just reserved for martyrs and missionaries. 
In fact, the definition of a truly Christian life, if you want to know your Christian life is genuine, it's defined this way. It's daily dying to this world and its values and its philosophies and putting to death our own flesh, our sinful desires and impulses, our vain pursuits and our selfish thoughts. See, bearing your cross, we use that term a lot, but I just want to clear this up. Bearing your cross is more than putting up with a mean boss. Bearing your cross is more than struggling through a series of red lights. The cross means the abandonment of all we are to the glory and the call of Jesus Christ. He now becomes the boss. He now becomes the priority. He is the end goal. Everything's now about Jesus. A Christian profession, uh, the, the identity of being a Christian, it's inseparable from the cross. Obviously, you know you can't be a Christian without the cross of Jesus, without Jesus dying on the cross. But the evidence that you are a Christian is seen in your own unceasing carrying of the cross of Christ. Next, he says this, whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. He's saying that loving sacrifice replaces self-preservation and self-interest. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? Now I want to pause here and say that all of this cross talk could seem to you like mere moralism. Do, do more, work harder, be better. For some of you, hearing me say, abandon everything and follow Christ could sound like I'm saying to you, hey, sell all your possessions, stop enjoying life. And while you're at it, sell some flowers on the street corner for the church. But Jesus tells us that it's only, this isn't about moralism, it's only in entrusting our life and our soul to Him, in looking for all the value of our life to be found in Him, that we can truly find lasting peace, that we can find real happiness and true security. That's the only way to do it. Taking up the cross of Jesus isn't about you trying to do something better. It's about you stopping and ceasing to do something. It's about deciding to stop trying to be as good as you can and grabbing life by the horns and making a name for yourself to losing yourself in Him. And trusting Him to be your goodness, to be your life, to give you an eternal name. Woe to us, for we have been seduced by this world and all its passing pleasures and have forgotten the value of our souls. Many are in danger of forfeiting their souls by clinging with all they've got to this world. But we can't forget that everything here will one day burn. It's all destined for destruction. Everything you cherish, everything you love that is of this world will someday be nothing more than a pile of ashes. But your soul, no matter what, is going to last forever. It will either exist in an ending blessed comfort and fullness of joy or in chains of fiery torment. And the way you know which direction your soul will go, how it will last forever, is by the cross. It's the cross that makes all the difference. 
Lastly, Jesus says, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And if I were to summarize what he says there, he's saying that those who shrink away from Christ's cross now will never share in Christ's glory then. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. The world has no regard, no regard for the cross's power to save or to inspire worship. They mock it, disregard it, despise it, ignore it. They're convinced it, it no longer has relevance if it ever even truly did. But, but what a greater tragedy. We know how they think, but what a greater tragedy is it when those of us who are called by the name of Christ are ashamed of his cross and we demonstrate that by never embracing it and never proclaiming it. See, it's by the cross that Jesus reigns and by it alone he wins for himself a people. And we must never forget what begins, the kingdom that begins with a bloody, shameful cross will be culminated in a shining, glorious city. Therefore, Therefore, I will glory in the cross of Christ. While the disciples are contemplating this, Jesus makes an announcement that here in this text seems out of place. It's really odd that somebody some in past history put this verse in chapter 9 instead of at the tail end of chapter 8 because in Matthew it is, it is right after this statement. He wants his disciples to look through the cross to what it purchases. And he speaks of the coming power of the kingdom. In Mark 9, 1, he says to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now, we are not going to spend a lot of time here, but notice the time frames in this passage. Those he's speaking to you there and then will still be alive when the kingdom comes with power. Some of you are waiting for, you know, Gabriel to blow his horn or something like that before the glorious kingdom comes in power. But Jesus is saying, you guys standing right here will not experience death until the kingdom comes in power. And we'll we'll think about that. He wants them to have vivid evidence from, or, or, or that the cross, he wants them to have evidence that the cross will open exciting new realms for those who believe. Now, That's it. We're going to touch on that next week. So if you want to know what that's all about, be here next week. I will glory in the cross. I will glory in the cross. Would you stand with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word of your cross. It's foolishness to those who are perishing, Lord. But to us who are being saved, it is the the emblem, the symbol, the expression of the power of God. And we thank you for that. Lord, help us to glory in your cross and to embrace for ourselves by your power and only by your power, a cross-centered, cross-carrying, cross-proclaiming, cross-bearing life. Help us, Lord, to know more and more what that means and to look 
more and more to you to enable us to be bearers of your cross. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. have our communion helpers come forward and, and uh, assist us at the tables. Um, and what a great, I believe as Christian, the cross should ever be before us. And what a great thing the Lord has done for us to give us this constant reminder, this, this way to, um, to, to reaffirm our covenant with him that we can handle with our hands and taste with our tongues the, the, these elements that remind us of his broken body and his shed blood on the cross. And so I want to um, invite those of you who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ who have embraced his cross to come forward and receive these elements and uh, take them back to your to your seat and we will share in them together. Paul writes for us in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, For I received... From the Lord, what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. In the same way also, after supper... He took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrances of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the cup together. Now let's give thanks. Father, we thank you for your broken body, your spilled blood, all as a result of your cross. That, Lord, you, God, you carried your cross. You, you did not despise the shame and you did it for the joy that was set before you, Hebrews tells us. And so, Lord, we thank you for that. Lord, I pray that by your power and your example, Lord, that we would do the same, that we would carry our cross, despise its shame, and look forward to the joy that is set before us through the cross, not around it, through it. And we thank you for this, Jesus, in your precious holy name. Amen. If you would place your hands in a receiving position, I want to just speak this benediction from the Word of God for you. And may this be the battle cry of Northridge Life Church. But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You're dismissed.